0: You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So today we'll be in Psalm chapter 16. I'll begin by reading and then chart a course for us. This is Psalm 16, a mictime of David. He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So Psalms are the church's songs of the summer. Let's push into that. Let's push into why. Why do we want to make these the songs of their heart, of, of our heart? Why do we want this to be the song that we remember? in in such a way that it's contagious and even if we wanted to forget it even if we're distracted it's something that comes to our mind because it's so impressed upon in our hearts so why do we want to do that this is why when life happens a different song begins to play right a different tune with a different message carrying a different truth begins to play and we begin to believe that instead but if you know this song if you know what's in God's Word such that it is the song of your heart, this song begins, you can sing it to yourself, and it becomes the dominant truth. It becomes the more powerful truth rather than the one that you might hear and be experiencing despite your circumstances. What do I mean by that? Here's an example. Now, imagine when something awful or tragic happens in the world or maybe even directly to you, Our finite minds influenced by our emotions would have us believe that something is wrong with God, right? Like, why would God allow something awful to happen to good people? Or why would God allow something terrible to happen if he is good? And when we know Psalm 34 and it's the song of our hearts, we're reminded and we remind ourselves because it sings in the very depths of our being, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And that becomes the immovable truth. That becomes the dominant truth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Is Psalm 106. When the song of our hearts remind us of what is true, the conflict that caused us to doubt ceases to become the authoritative word in our life. This doesn't mean that the pain goes away or the problem is solved or even that answers will be given, but instead that the ultimate eternal truth that transcends our experience will be remembered. And so, I want us to consider this, that the Psalms are not just balm for our soul, not merely balm for our soul, they're a container for the truth that we can cling to through all time that transcend our experiences. So now, this is a, a common doubt of, of our time in our culture, maybe for longer, but at least now uh, it certainly is true, the idea of an ultimate truth. So what I'm saying is I am imposing this as a truth for us to remember despite our circumstances. But right now we're living in a culture and time where our circumstances and the way we feel and how the way things make us feel, become dominant in such a way as that becomes the truth and the reality for us. And this phrase that everyone has their own truth becomes kind of the song of the summer for our culture. And so how could I be so bold and arrogant as to impose that such a truth, an ultimate truth outside of what we experience and believe is ultimately true? Here's an example, an analogy that helps me understand this. Think of the sun, will you? Not the sun, S-O-N, but the sun that is bright and shining and gives you vitamin D. In the 1500s, something happened in our understanding in the world. Uh, Something happened in relation to the sun, and that is before the 1500s, the early 1500s, people believed because you wake up in the morning and the sun rises in the east and you go to sleep at night and the sun sets in the west that logically speaking because we are here and the sun does this that the sun revolves around the world the sun revolves around us right so logically speaking because this is what we experience that is what must be true after the 1500s happened people begin to realize okay you know we're wrong the world actually rotates and revolves around the sun and that's what causes the sun to rise and set. It's actually not rising and setting, but instead we're going around it and we are rotating. And so here's the question. Before the 1500s, before our understanding of that came to be, was it true that in that time prior that the sun actually did revolve around the earth? So did the sun revolve around the earth prior to the 1500s? And most of you who've read your books and know your science would say logically, no, that's ridiculous. And so we see that even so, even so when our experiences and what we might believe based on what we experience seem to be to us the dominant truth and what defines what reality is and what's happening and what is true for us, seems to be the dominant thing, even before maybe our eyes are open to and. Ultimate truth, something dominant like the sun, an immovable object, an immovable and dominant truth that can be true even outside of our experience, and even if we haven't yet had our eyes open to that. So, this text today is not just balm for your soul, it's a container for the truth to cling to through all time. And so, if you're not a Christian, if you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, this is good news that we're about to dig in. And so I want you to listen in, to lean in. And if you are, if you would call yourself a believer in this room, this is a reminder of the good news you need to memorize and sing to yourself in the night. And so Jonathan's given us, Pastor Jonathan has given us a, a few of these in the Psalms that he's preached through. Uh, I want you to get good at this. So today, this is, this is kind of a, a cop-out, right? I want you to get good at knowing and singing the Psalms. Well, that seems obvious, but this is the very point. The more we get good at knowing and singing the Psalms, they become the song of our heart. The truth is what we're founded in, and the truth is what we're able to remind ourselves in when life happens in our experiences. So how are we gonna study this text today? This text is a little bit like a roller coaster. Psalm 16 is a little bit like a roller coaster, and I don't mean it's all over the place and it's crazy necessarily, but instead, that it starts off, you know how a roller coaster starts off. It goes up and it goes up, and your heart is pounding and just like the, the intense. And it is like it just drags you up to this thing before you quickly turn and it, it lets you loose. Um, I'm going to take that analogy too far later. So let's dig in. We'll take it a verse or two at a time, spending some more time in some than others. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So David, the author of this psalm, he's writing a song, not just text for us to study, but he's writing a song. From his own heart, we see, in a lot of the psalms, there's a lot of different kinds of psalms out there and and meanings and psalms for different times and, and what's happening. And a lot of times especially when the author is David, he'll identify what type of psalm that is by how he identifies himself in the beginning of the psalm. And what I mean by this, in the beginning, he says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. So what kind of a psalm is this? Well, let's understand that by understanding who the author is in this. Is this David the conquering king? No, is this David the downtrodden, sad, weeping, crying out to his soul? Not quite. This is David the refugee. So David as a refugee is reminding himself of the goodness he has and only has in the Lord. And he goes on to say, As for the saints in the land, they're the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. David delights in the holy, set apart brothers and sisters, the true worshipers, the saints in the land. This is easy for us to experience now because... We said 10 a.m., and here you all are. So this is, this is easier for us to relate to. They're the excellent ones, in whom is my delight. And this is where we start to drag the roller coaster up, and we're going to really, this is going to get a little bit more intense. He says, he changes tone. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offering of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. We're going to start here. This is where it gets more intense, where the rubber meets the road. This is the only note of sadness in the psalm, where many psalms teach us how to mourn well or cry out to God for help. This is not the theme of the psalm, but he does put this line in here for a reason. And so I think it's to contrast with what's to come. I think he puts this line in here to contrast what is about to come. So let's dig in. Let's dig into the mess here. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. In David's context, uh, in, in, the, in the culture and context that he was writing this in, this was much easier, more literal. Uh, people who are chasing after or clinging to or trying to acquire other gods or like literal statues or things that they might have formed or worshiping the sun, different things like that. Now let's look at uh, Romans 1, 21-25 as we see the early church, what this looks like for the early church after Jesus um, lived, uh, died, was resurrected, and ascended into heaven. This is a a letter, so we get to read someone's mail of what it looks like, um, the chasing after other gods. He said, um, talking about uh, the pagans and other people in the land, Paul says, to impurity to the, the, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever amen. So this is what it looked like for the early church the exchange even though the, even though they knew God and it says before this that that's because God reveals himself, To his people, God reveals himself to people even through his creation. All people are without excuse because they know even through creation who God is and that he is real. But they exchanged that for a lie because of what they wanted. So God allowed that. The sorrows will multiply for those who run after another God. So apply that to us. How does that look like for us? Apply this to your own heart. This is a good question. Ask yourself, and maybe jot down some notes if this will help. What do you want? What do you want? I know this is a deep, existential, philosophical question. Exactly, that's what we're doing. What do you want? Ask yourself that. If you're having a hard time getting there, maybe ask yourself, what do you do? Do's expose wants. What you do exposes what you want. And once expose worship. What you want is what you worship, points to what you worship. So once do, uh, so what once do you have that caused you to doubt or turn from God? What competes for the throne in your heart? What's the thing that pains you when poked at by the truth of God? Or, or what thing do you hold on to when it's pulled at by the truth of God? Maybe you say, I would believe God if... Or maybe you say, I would follow God if... Or maybe you say... I would, I would believe that God is good if whatever comes after that if is what you worship. Whatever comes after that if is what you value greater than God. You might think, well, I'm not going to admit that I don't believe God exists or that I don't want to follow God. Well, then say, I would be more prone to believe in God or I would be more prone to follow God if, if that's the case. Whatever comes after that if is what you value greater than God, the, thing, the things that you might be running after as other gods. So David starts out with the truth, a declaration to remind ourselves, sorrows will multiply. Now, the reason why he does this, at least the reason why I think, because of what is to come in a few moments, is that the truth is the only fertile ground for good news. We could tell you just you are forgiven. we could tell you that Jesus died for your sins, but if you don't believe that you're sinful, if you don't need that you're in need of saving, that's not good news. that's just okay. And so the truth is the only fertile ground for good news. It's difficult to hear for the most time, but uh, receiving the truth is what tills and softens and provides fertile ground for the uh, good news to take root so dig in dig into your own heart before I'll allow us to move on and I want you to dig in is it your feelings is it the way some things in God's word makes you feel is that what you're resistant to is it your biological family the way that they might disagree with or even reject you if you boldly follow Christ is it your own love of entertainment or comfort are you apathetic towards the call to die to yourself, pick up your cross and follow Jesus? Is it the idea that everyone else out there who, is, who has the thing that you think you want and it actually seems like it's making them happy, that job or that car or the spouse or the kids or the financial security or the put-together family or the fun travel adventures, is that what you're holding your hope in? Is it your anxiety anxiety? of things outside of your immediate control that are making you resistant? Is it the way you've been burned by trusting others, maybe even by people who have called themselves the church? Is it your desire to please yourself with the most immediate and pleasurable things you can find because you delight in yourself? Is it your reputation that you wish to build or success or humility Wealth or modesty so that others will regard you as exceptional? Is it yourself to live a king or queen and a God as long as you can, pretending to know what is best for you and what you believe must be the most true and right thing for you? Is that what you're holding on to? Is that the God that you're chasing after Your ability to dig into that truth and that question of your own heart is going to be the extent of your ability to receive the good news that is to come. But I won't hold us any longer. Let us dig in to verse 5 and 6. The Lord, David says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, before we move on, I don't want us to get caught and confused by the word chosen portion. David is not saying here, a, a better translation of this might be allotted portion or given portion. He's not saying this is my portion of choice or my favorite portion. He's saying this is the, cho- the portion chosen for me. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And saying the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places is just another way of backing up his next claim. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The lines Falling in pleasant places. This was culturally in that time when they were going to settle land and and divide up the inheritances among the family. The lines that they would draw in the land physically would determine what plot of land, what plot of inheritance you would receive. And so he's saying it's fallen in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. And so, theologian Derek Kidner breaks it down like this, and I'm just going to use this. He manages to pack the extent of the theological magnificent truths of this into one paragraph that takes a long time to unpack, and so I'm just going to use that for the next portion of this morning. He says, based on these two verses here, he, that is David, has triumphantly outthought his enemy and his own doubts, he remembers the disinheritance that disinheritance can even be an honor and a pointer to the only real security since God has likewise given his priests no block of territory to call their own only the assurance that I am your portion and your inheritance so David And every singer of this psalm, meaning us too, can now see that this is no peculiarity of priesthood, but a pointer to the true riches of each member of God's Israel, that kingdom of priests. What does that mean? Let's dig in. And so we're going to go for a little bit of a ride in the Scriptures, both the Old Testament and the New. And this is why. Because the psalms were written by people whose Bible, if you will, was the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. And the Psalms were the songs of the heart of the writers of the New Testament such that this, when they were squeezed in their circumstances, is what came out. That's why Jesus so often quoted the Psalms and the other New Testament writers so often quoted the Psalms. And so when you study the Psalms, You'll probably find yourself in the first five books of the Old Testament and the New. So let's go. Let's get some juicy backstory here. In 1 Samuel 26, 17 through 19, this isn't definitely what was going on when David wrote this song, but this is his backstory that I think greatly affected what uh, what he wrote in Psalm 16. So 1 Samuel 26... 17 through 19, he, uh, the, the uh, context of this story is David is uh, not yet king of Israel, but he's been ordained by God to be the future king of Israel. And so Saul is the king of Israel, and Saul is out to get David. He doesn't like this. In this point in time, there's a lot of back and forth. If you're familiar with this story, this is one of the points where Saul and his army are pursuing David to kill him, to to make sure that he will not overthrow the uh, throne and so David has gathered a few friends a few people who later become his mighty men mighty warriors in battle and they're out in the wilderness scattered only a few of them and they hear of where Saul is camped and so they go to the edge of the camp at night and and you see, before this, David and uh, one of his most trusted companions, Abishai, are having a conversation, and Abishai is trying to convince him to go kill Saul in the night because God has clearly given him into your hands. And, and David says, far be it from me to um, take matters into my own hands. I will let the Lord uh, determine if and when my, my kingship, my, my reigning in the throne happens. I, I will not see... Uh, let the, the Lord's judgment come upon me by trying to seek that in my own time. And so instead, what they do, the two of them, they go up, they walk through the camp, all of the people stay asleep, because God is amazing, and sometimes he lets crazy things like that happen. Everybody, all of the thousands of people, stay asleep. They walk all the way to Saul, the king, whom all these people are supposed to be protecting, just the two of them, and they take his water bottle, And they take his spear, his sustenance and his weapon from him, and they leave the camp. And then they go to the outside of the camp. And then David calls, I think kind of tauntingly, but also calling out the commander of Saul's army. And as he's calling him out, saying what wrong he has done, this is where we pick up. And Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? and David said it is my voice my lord o king and and David said why does my lord pursue after his servant for what have i done what evil is on my hands now therefore let my lord the king hear the words of his servant if it is the lord who has stirred up against me may he accept an offering but if it is men may they be cursed before the lord because they have driven me out of this land that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord saying go serve other gods they said this they drove him out saying that you have no heritage here david go serve other gods this is the context for him and this is why mr kidner says here he has triumphantly outthought his enemy and his own doubts he remembered that disinheritance that he experienced literally in this case, can even be an honor and a pointer to the only real security. Since God has likewise given his priests no block of territory to call their own, what is he talking about here? Let's go back a little bit further. To Numbers 18.20. So, after the Israelites. God, this is much earlier before David, after God rescu- rescues the Israelites from uh, captivity in Egypt, he establishes some things. And one of the things that he establishes is priests, of which Aaron is the leader. And, um, and he establishes them so that they can manage and, and operate, be intercessors for all the people of Israel to, uh, with the offerings. So this is just a, a short little bit, Numbers 18 20, and the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in the land, neither shall you have any portion among them. Why would God do this? He says, I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. The priesthood is given no earthly inheritance, but God says, I am your portion. Even more in Exodus 19:6, when he establishes this. For the people of Israel, he even prophesies with his own command. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you out to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be my kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So he meant, God meant for his people, for the people of God, to be like priests, a holy nation. And later, when he establishes a priesthood, he says, you will have no inheritance. I am your inheritance. No earthly inheritance. Because I am your inheritance. I am your portion. And David remembers this. He's read this. He recalls it. And so given his circumstances, when he is sent out, When he is driven out and said, you will have no heritage from the Lord, go chase after other gods. David says, the sorrows of those who chase after other gods will multiply. And he says, you, my Lord, are my chosen portion. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, how does that apply to us? Going back to the quote Kigner, he says... Since God has likewise given his priests no block of territory to call their own, only the assurance, I am your portion and your inheritance. So David and every singer of this psalm can now see that this is no peculiarity of priesthood, but a pointer to the true riches of each member of God's Israel, that is, the kingdom of priests. So how does this apply to us? So what do we have in common with David in this way? I'm glad you asked. 1 Peter chapter 2 lets us in on this beautiful mystery. So this is after Jesus has lived and died and is resurrected and ascended into heaven. And now it is not merely Israel who is God's people, but all others are grafted in. He says... In 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 10 he says as you come to him that is Jesus who is a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ for it stands in scripture a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, and now you have received mercy. So this profound truth that... David declares in light of his contradictory circumstances that, Lord, is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance remains true. And so right now, you, if you call yourself a Christian in the room, have more in common with David in the wilderness as a refugee pleading for his own soul to remember the heavenly inheritance that God has graciously given him than we do with his kingly reign later in his life. We are a holy priesthood in a treacherous wilderness surrounded by people stumbling on the rock of offense, who is our king, of whom we are princes and princesses too. So, like David, you, Christian, are refugees in the world, rejected by men, And have no share in any earthly inheritance. Like David, our identity is that of priests set apart with no earthly inheritance. Like David, our portion, our inheritance is the Lord. Like David, we recognize that we are one of many, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, Saints in the land in whom we delight. And like David, we sing to remind our souls, the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my chosen portion, my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, we have a beautiful inheritance. That is why this is our, this is our song in the same way that David reminded himself and won over his heart to the truth, despite what he was experiencing, that, is his, that his inheritance is the Lord, so also. So to the holy priesthood chosen by God, the ones who have tasted and seen the, the Lord is good, the things that others chase after, find valuable, their inheritances are perishable. They're unsatisfying imitations of a heavenly and eternal inheritance that the Lord has won with the blood of Jesus and freely offered to us. If that's too much, think of it this way. The earthly inheritances are like monopoly money. They might look and act and in a game interact and exchange like real money does, but we all know that they don't have any real value So here's an application and warning. Apply this to your own heart. What inheritance are you banking on? Or a better question is, what inheritance are you investing in? What are you giving your time and your money and your talent to? What are you putting your hope in? What are you you putting your treasure in? Because even if you know this as a truth, it, it means less to seeing this if you're actively living Contrary to this. Now if your circumstances and your experiences are trying to tell you otherwise, this song reminds you of what is true. But if you're actively seeking something else while singing and pretending as though this is true, that's where repentance comes in to turn and believe the good news of the gospel. So with that... David leaves us with seven blessings. Blessing is an understatement for one or two of them, but that's how we'll categorize it for now. David leaves us with seven blessings in the remainder of these verses that we are to cherish. As opposed to our eternal inheritance, which we get to rejoice in now, but don't experience until later. Remember, we're refugees in the wilderness. These are blessings that are true because of God's work through Jesus for us right now that David was even able to experience and foretell. Because of this, we are given counsel from the Lord. As a blessing, we're also given unshakable confidence, gladness and rejoicing, security and salvation and perseverance, a path made known, a fullness of joy and infinite pleasures. And I'll only spend 20 minutes on these, so we'll be out of here by 2 p.m., I promise. (laughs) I kid. Verse 7, he says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. We are given counsel from the Lord. That's exactly what it sounds like. What does he mean by that? He means exactly what it sounds like. The fulfillment of this, the, the fullest extent of this is given to us. As foretold, we just studied the book of John together as a church. Foretold in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, the coming of the Holy Spirit and that to come in fruition. As also talked about, if you want to jot this down, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14, speak more on this. We're given counsel from the Lord, a helper. There's a blessing that we have in this wilderness. My heart instructs me in the night. That just makes me think even more how much how crucial it is for for this to become the song of our heart, so that when our heart instructs us in the night, it's instructing us from the immovable word of God. The second thing we're given as a blessing is unshakable confidence. You said, I've set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Now this right hand is the best way to understand it. There's two possible meanings of that. One, is in like a court of law, someone who stands and defends you like a lawyer, perhaps. The other one is in battle, someone who's wielding a sword next to you. Now, until proven otherwise, I'm going to assume he meant both of these, because both are true, as we see elsewhere in Scripture, that the unshakable confidence that we have is both as God as our king and warrior, and God who has gone to bat for us to justify us before the Lord. The third thing we get is gladness and rejoicing. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Oh, I'm not, I'm not doing good on my slides here. I'm sorry. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. So not only are we gifted with a heavenly inheritance, an eternal inheritance that is worth rejoicing in and worth being glad in, but we're given all of this gladness and rejoicing currently now and so think back what was the last time that your whole being rejoiced if your friends were to describe you would you say yes that person their whole being rejoices when they're excited about this one thing is just such a profound phraseology my whole being rejoices i am utterly overwhelmed with what is inside of me such that it flows out of me whether I would like to or not. It makes me think of, I don't know if you're much for musicals or maybe some Disney movies, I'm not sure. I just remember a couple musicals, theater performances that I've seen where there's these two characters, they never make it on stage at the same time. You see the girl and the guy and you see like this relationship happening even though they haven't met yet. And like this one, like the missing pieces to this person's life and soul and the missing pieces of This person's life and soul are developing. You're just like, I just can't wait. And then, boom, they make it on the stage. They look at each other. No, they burst into song immediately. It's like their whole being rejoices in song. Seems ridiculous, right? On the contrary, it is biblical. Turn to Genesis chapter 2. That's what happens. It's real life, guys. That's, That's the kind of whole being rejoices that i'm talking about it's not just a cultural difference it's an eternal reality i'll be quick with this but people think so we're talking about singing as 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 a way to to express the the rejoicing of your being it's not just a cultural difference or a cultural limited thing to sing as an expression of our rejoicing it's an eternal reality people think and talk a lot about the end times. Do you know how much we don't know about the end times? A whole lot. There's a whole lot we don't know about the end times. You know what we do know about the end times? Two things. Jesus wins, and we sing about it. (laughs) It's an eternal reality. We sing as an expression of our fullness of joy. Our whole being rejoices. The fourth thing here, end of verse 9 and then 10, my flesh also dwells secure. We're given security in salvation and perseverance. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now don't miss this, guys. He is not, he is not just talking about health and wealth and his well-being He said, you will not abandon my soul to shale. He says, you will not abandon my soul to death or let me see corruption. What reason does he have to make this claim? What reason does he have? How much death is he surrounded by? How imminent is his death? And likewise for us, how can we be confident in this? How how certain is our death? As certain as taxes, right? Something we can be certain of. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2, 29-36. This is Peter talking. So this is, this is the beginning of the church being developed after Jesus ascended into heaven. Peter says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Day, Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, or Sheol, nor did his flesh therefore exalted... uh, Sorry. This Jesus God raised up, And of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, that is the counsel, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, This Jesus, whom you crucified. Now even later, a different person who studied the same Old Testament, had the same Psalms in his heart. Paul, in Acts chapter 13, verses 34 through 39, says, And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, that is Jesus, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David, that is of uh, what David talked about. Therefore, David, after he had served for the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, that is, died, and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption, making David a liar. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. That is, Jesus, whom God raised up, did not see corruption. Let it be known to you... F- Therefore, brothers and sisters, that is you in this room, let it be known that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Friends, these words sung by David were not sung in vain. The fullness of this impossible claim was completed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and freely offered to us. He means to not abandon your soul to Sheol or let you see corruption, but instead offers you to partake in a miracle of resurrection from the dead like his son, Jesus. What good news for you to hear this morning. And so the last three blessings See, that was more than a blessing, wasn't it? That's not just like a, and you get this. That was like, that's the whole thing, right? Oh, well, we'll call them blessings. It is a blessing. The last three blessi- blessings are a path made known, fullness of joy, and a pleasure's forevermore. And they kind of jump off of each other. So verse 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. This path of life is not necessarily the job you should take, the person you should marry, the place that you should live, but rather the path of life, the path where there is life. Where is that? In your presence, there is fullness of joy. In his presence, which has fullness of joy, and at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. The refugee we see in verse 1 that we identify with finds himself to be an heir and his inheritance to be eternal and completely satisfying. Such is true for the follower of Christ. So, if you're in this room today and you would not call yourself a Christian, if you're in this room and you would not say, I live and follow Jesus, I've been born again, Hear this, and please don't miss this. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. In God's presence, which is our inheritance as believers, there is fullness of joy. And there are pleasures forevermore. If you would call yourself a Christian and you're in this room today, this is not just a list of blessings to hide in your journal. This is not just a list of blessings to decorate your house with. This is a heart song to be sung that when the gods of this world When the money and the power and the overwhelming circumstances and the heavy emotions and the certain feelings and the friendships and competing messages and the seemingly way that it is, alternate truth rings in your ears, this is the song to have memorized in your very heart to sing and remind and strengthen your soul with. The Lord is my portion. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you be so kind as to teach us the riches of your heritage? Lord, teach us the great wealth that you mean to be our inheritance. Father give us an appetite for your presence give us a longing for communion with you our earthly bodies are drunk on pleasures of this world and cave after and crave after perishable things lord we confess that we often desire and chase after other gods thank you for not leaving us to destruction and multiplied sorrows thank you for not abandoning us us to death and corruption. Lord, thank you for purchasing salvation for us with the blood of Jesus. Our heritage now is resurrection. Our blessings now are in your presence. Not only do you grant us life and an eternal inheritance, but you offer us the fullness of joy and eternal pleasures. Lord, give us an appetite for the pleasures that are only found and abundantly found in your presence, where there is fullness of joy. It is in your good and gracious name that we pray. Amen.